Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is the podcast where we discuss construction safety, typically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I am Rick Plosinski, Customer Training Specialist, and with me is Casey Willett and Ricky Bell. Casey, can you give us a brief introduction? Hey, yeah, my name is Casey Willett. I'm the District Manager for uh, the Southeast District in our trench safety region. Thank you, Casey and Ricky. Hey, thanks, Rick. I'm Ricky Bell. I've been in the construction equipment rental business for 19 years. Currently a branch manager for United Rentals in Charleston, South Carolina, and I manage the trench safety location here. Started in the general rental side, worked at a equipment dealership, then went on to trench safety and short stint and pump. Thank you, Ricky. So our conversation will hopefully be informative and educational so we can help you avoid injuries and fatalities while on the job site and hopefully be just a little bit entertaining. Now, today, since the road construction season is kicking off in many areas of the country, we have chose to discuss work zone safety as our topic. Now, road construction is one of the most dangerous jobs in construction, killing approximately 20 people every month in work zones across the United States. Now, we're going to discuss many methods of increasing worker safety, but one surefire method of maintaining work zone safety is to appeal to all drivers to to slow down when in construction zones and follow the posted speed limits. Those workers are there to make your lives easier by maintaining good quality roads. Please slow down and be courteous to those workers around that area. Now, one of the key requirements for temporary traffic control work zones is advanced warning signs so drivers are aware of what's ahead. They are placed at specific intervals ahead of the work zone based on location and speed, high-speed rural versus low-speed urban, for example. So, Ricky, what types of signs do you typically see being used out in the field, and is there a benefit to one over the other? So, yeah, Rick, there's a, there's a couple different types of signs out there. The South Carolina DOT actually has a 514-page manual that covers what types should be used and when they should be used. The major differences there between the two types of signs are location and duration of the work to be done. The hard signs are typically for longer duration projects and higher uh, traffic volume roadways. And the benefits of these hard signs is durability, they're lightweight, and really they're fairly inexpensive compared to the the diamond grade roll-up signs. The benefits of the roll-up signs are they're easy to set up, they're easy to store in the back of a truck or a trailer, um, and they're easy to see by motorists. They're 48 by 48 inches, diamond grade, as I said, just reflective material that will light up at night you know, when headlights hit it. So there's there's definitely benefits to each. And you just mentioned it too. Visibility is a key. There is visibility and high visibility, and then there is retro reflective material. And we'll talk more about that as we kind of go through. But visibility is one of the key factors in work zone safety. Now, Casey, there are specific applications for delineators that are used for temporary traffic control as well. Basically, delineating the difference between what is the work zone area and then what is the travel area. So there are things like water barriers, there's cones, there's even different size of cones for different applications. Where would one type of equipment be used over another? Yeah, so first of all, you just got to know that each scenario is going to be different. For example, state and local DOT requirements can vary 
Uh, airports have their own standards, non-DOT roads. They may have different requirements from, from the DO, uh, DOT requirements. So you really have to understand where you're working and be educated on the specifics. You're correct. There are several types of delineators, including a variety of cones, which have different bases or weight, weights of bases, retroreflective bands, heights, handle styles. It just all has to do with the application specific to the job site. Speed zone is typically a primary facet of decision-making regarding delineators. Speed will change the advanced warning distance and angle of the delineation needed for traffic to reasonably shift lanes, uh, as well as dictate height requirements for visibility purposes. So, you know, regarding water barriers, that's a term that's thrown around pretty loosely in the industry and, and usually incorrectly. Uh, and it, it, does, it does go back to the application and, again, understand local requirements. But the two main categories of what we'll call water fill devices are LCDs, which stands for Longitudinal Channelizing Device, and then there are water barriers. And they look very similar. The difference between those two is is one is intended to self-descriptive channelize. It's meant to help divert traffic. A barrier, however, is intended to stop it. And so where they're used becomes very important. And there's there's differences physically between the two. A, A barrier, a water barrier, typically is going to have an internal cabling system, which is going to provide that stopping power for a hit, where uh, an, an LCD is not designed to withstand an impact. So, you know, if you think about where does one apply versus the other, you've got to, you've got to think about the, the specifics of the job. Um, are we just maintaining traffic flow and it's running parallel with a, with a road? Or is it, you know, is there a T coming into a job site where there's an opportunity for a vehicle to go straight and, and impact at a perpendicular angle this, this water filled device? And which one is going to stop and protect the workers on the other side of it? Looking at intersections and turning radiuses and just, it, it takes, you know, looking at it uh, to determine which one applies in, in different applications. Most importantly, it's just becoming educated with the local requirements or working with industry professionals to assist in design and uh, and understanding the job requirements and what what will provide the most protection for exposed workers in in the hazard area. And there are different uh, types of barriers that are classified as TL1, TL2, TL3 which have to do with the the mile per hour, you know, zone they're being used in. Ricky, you were talking about visibility earlier. Visibility for both the worker and the components of temporary traffic control plays a critical role in the safety of both the worker and even the motorist, no matter what the lighting conditions. What type of equipment do you see being used to improve visibility in the work zones, not only about the work that is being performed, but also the worker themselves? So luckily, Rick, you're right. There's a there's a huge list of stuff that's out there. Even, you know, PPE for, for workers has gotten better over the years and it's a lot more visible than it used to be. And with today's distracted driver that is on every roadway pretty much 24-7, phones and texting and everything else, it's a huge issue. The different equipment, it ranges from arrow boards to message boards that signal oncoming traffic to either make a lane change because of a, a lane closure or a message board just to alerting the public of what's going on in the, in the upcoming area. There's also truck-mounted attenuators and trailer-mounted attenuators, also probably better known as crash trucks and crash trailers. And that's really what they're there for is to set up a barrier between the worker and the public, and they will accept a, a crash. There's also, like we talked about before, the large reflective signs. The other thing that I see a lot of in, in the area is high-intensity vehicle flashing or strobe lights. And contractors have gotten really good at, at putting these on their work trucks. They also put them on the equipment. I've seen them on 
on backhoes and uh, paving machines. And the, the strobe lights really stand out. Uh, it's almost like having a police vehicle or an emergency vehicle on the side of the road. It, it catches their attention. Light towers, uh, see a lot of that with the paving. They'll, they'll light up the area. They'll light up the flaggers so that the flaggers are safe. And then flashing amber lights, you can mount those on everything from barrels to channelizers. They also alert and they show the, the traffic flow movement. And then it comes down to, the like I said, the individual level is reflective vest. A lot of the guys will have reflective stripes on their hard hats just to grab the attention of the motorist and let them know that you know they're out there working. Yeah, and that's the thing. When you're talking about visibility and you're talking about reflective material, there are two different types of reflective material. There's reflective material and then there's retro reflective material. Reflective material, it takes the light and just kind of reflects it all over the place. The interesting thing about the retro reflective material is it accepts the beam of light and then it bounces it back directly to its source. If you've ever seen this stuff, it really, it looks like it's just this glowing orb. And when you're looking at somebody who is actually wearing retro reflective material it's like this glowing orb that's just kind of floating above the road surface i mean it really is a very bright thing using that type of material in a road construction area it is really going to make things that much brighter and that much clearer and hopefully give you the opportunity to kind of divert around and see what's going on so that you can stay away now, you just mentioned a little bit about crash trucks and trailers, and there is a hierarchy of hazard abatement when we're talking about eliminating hazards, right, or protecting folks from hazards. Everything from PPE, which is the very, very basic, to eliminating the hazard and eliminating the hazard in a road construction area that's going to require you to divert traffic. And in some cases, that's just not able to be performed. So when you're talking about things like crash trucks and trailers, because these are a really good second choice to protect employees and workers, how are these used and rated for the specific location that they might be used in? So both the crash truck and the crash trailer are primarily used there to provide separation between approaching vehicular traffic and a work zone. So there's two different levels of attenuators. The first is test level two, um, and then the next one's test level three. And test level two, they're used with posted speed limits of 45 miles an hour or less, and usually secondary roadways, that type of thing. Test level three are used with posted speed limits of 55 miles an hour or greater, and they're acceptable on all roadways. The crash trailer um, is something that, that I think is fairly new to the industry. But the one thing to keep in mind with that is when you do use it, it has to be mounted or hooked, attached to a uh, gross vehicle weight of 10,000 pounds or greater. And most contractors will use a spare dump, dump truck they have, you know, single axle dump truck or uh, a spare chop flatbed, and they'll stick it out on the roadway and have the, the attenuator trailer behind it. And then, Casey, some areas of the country, not all areas, but some areas around the country allow for an automated flagging device. How does this equipment work? The, the automatic flaggers removes the flagger from the danger, right? They're, they are still, they are still manned, so to speak. So, for example, a typical setup will have two, two units, one on each end of a lane closure. That's a, that's a pretty basic application. And having, uh, you know, one individual that has line of sight to both ends of that work zone is able to use a remote control to lower and raise the, the flag for for these devices they also come they're, they're also just very big right so in in this in this uh in a work zone safety issue you think about just you know the size the magnitude of 
of what's going to create the caution with drivers, right? You know, a, a stop sign or stop slow paddle, it's not very big, it's not very tall, and someone's holding it, right? Well, uh, an automatic flagger, it, it's, a, it's just a big device. It's very tall. It's very flashy. It's got, a, a, you know, the drop arm extends all the way through to the mid middle of the lanes. Um, so it just creates a much more awareness for a driver who is, you know, we've all become probably a very numb to to seeing the stop signs and seeing people. And, and uh, it, it just creates much more awareness for a driver. And so by being able to use a remote control, the flagger still has full control over that work zone. They still have to be trained as a flagger, but they don't have to be in danger's way, in harm's way. Um, you know, other benefits are they are able to, to, to do this from anywhere as long as they've got visibility. So if you think about getting out of the elements, right, of the heat of a summer day in August and, and asphalt work going on, that is a brutal, you know, environment to work in. Um, but as long as we can create that line of sight, we can have them in shade. We can have them anywhere that that can help uh, just just protect the worker from other aspects related to heat and otherwise. Yeah. And one of the things that we want to stress, it is required that flaggers have training. And the benefit of these pieces of equipment is they still have to be attentive. They still have to be able to make sure that they can see everything that's going on. But it removes them from that particular area so that they're not in the line of fire. So, yeah, so automatic flaggers, they give more than just a stop slow view from a driver's perspective. They have a, they have a light. So they've got a red and they've got a yellow light that coordinate with the stop and the go. And I think we would all agree that a traffic light provides much more awareness. We will acknowledge that. I think it's a natural, you know, we would acknowledge that probably quicker than a stop sign, a slow sign. Um, so it, it provides, you know, just a, you know, the lights as well as an actual barrier, barrier cage style of arm that comes down so it's you know just provides more than than that small stop sign slow sign uh one more thing rick too is most of them have a feature where there is a siren or a horn on the remote control so if i'm the flagger operating these and i see a car blow through i can hit that alarm i can hit that horn at both ends of that that lane there's a blasted horn siren that's going to go off and alert everybody in that work zone hey here comes a car one small point to that, trying to hire people uh, in our current environment is, is extremely tough. So this just takes one headcount out that, that you have to hire for, or if you do hire, you can utilize that individual for another task. And when we're working with, whether it's crash trucks or crash trailers, or we're talking about automated flagging devices, they all have to be rated what we call crash-worthy, right? So in order to be used in work zones. So what standards are used to make the determination that something is crash-worthy? In 2016, uh, there was an update to, to exactly what you're talking about. It's called MASH, M-A-S-H. Uh, it, it, and it's an acronym, which stands for Manual for Assessing Safety Hardware. And it's uh, it's really just the latest in a series of uniform guidance for roadside safety hardware assessment. Um, and it goes all the way back to 1962. So it's an update from what was called the NCHRP 350, which was written in 1993. So this is uh, this is the latest, greatest standard by which the industry has products tested to evaluate how they're going to perform you know, in a situation where there's a collision uh, or improve the situation if to prevent you know, collisions, right? So MASH, as well as 3, 350, these, these standards, are they're always written 
from the perspective of the vehicle occupancy safety, meaning the people inside that vehicle, what's going to happen if, if there's an impact, right? So it tests for things like object penetration and windshields, floorboards, collision results. Uh, but the benefit of that is obviously if we make it better for the occupancy of the vehicle, we're also going to add layers of protection for those outside the vehicle. So, you know, some of the key differences between the 350 and the MASH, just for a couple of examples, or are the weights of the vehicles that were used to test in, in 90, in, uh, with the 350 versus, versus the MASH testing. Vehicles have gotten bigger. I mean, I'm sure everyone can think back to 1996 and what you were driving, right? We're driving a lot of SUVs. Just your average vehicle on the road is bigger. So, you know, it's a, it's an outdated standard to, to use old weights dealing with, you know, today's traffic control products. So, you know, that's just an example. So, you know, pick up the, the tested vehicle weight for the mash rating went from 4,400 to 5,000 pounds. That's just an example of, of kind of the differences and the updates that have happened. How this applies to what we do is I believe every state has actually adopted mash. Um, the only exception are a few specific devices, but generally speaking, that is that is the standard by which we are held to. So when it comes to your, you know, back to the water barricade type conversation, any any uh, or, or the crash trailers, crash trucks, a device should have a mash rating on it. And if it does not, it's not supposed to be used. There, there was a transition, right, from a 350, from the old 350 standard to the MASH standard. Anything that was currently in use was somewhat grandfathered in to be continued using in that specific location and job site. But any new applications being put out on the road should follow the MASH standard. And not only that, it needs to be used in a manner that is going to be consistent with that crash test rating. As I drive across the country, I see a lot of stuff that is taking place out there that would not be considered crashworthy. Okay, a lot of people, for example, what they will do is is they will take a one of those poles, right? They will attach it to a piece of plywood, put a couple of hooks over the piece of plywood and hang that from the speed limit sign or whatever type of sign that might be permanently mounted on the road. And you still have this pole. Well, think about that. If you hit that sign, where is that pole going to go? It's going to go directly through your windshield and might very well likely go right through you. That is not something that's going to be considered crashworthy. And then one other point that I want to make about this, too, is that proper training for all of this is an absolute necessity. Whether you are being a flagger in a temporary traffic control work zone or whether you are an actual worker that is, you know, performing the work, doing the paving and everything else, proper training is an absolute key. Everybody needs to be trained in the proper safety methods and the equipment that you're about to use in order to keep everybody safe. This has been Behind Standards with United Rentals. If you have any questions about this topic or have any suggestions about other topics that you may want to be discussed, feel free to send an email to urtspodcast at ur.com. For additional content and training information, go to trenchsafetyevents.com. On behalf of Casey, Ricky, and myself, thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe.